universities have never been equal, equitable institutions. They have been founded on principles of inequality, you know, socioeconomics backgrounds being superior to others. I'm really convinced that if we do not have this conversation about who holds the power in the university, who is privileged, who benefits from the ongoing inequality, we will never change it. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome uh, to another episode of Parallax. Um, so this is a unique episode. Um, it's an important episode. It's an episode which will discuss an important topic. And this topic um, is unfortunately prevalent within academic medicine and, and science, um, you know, at large. And um, I decided to cover this topic because I stumbled upon a paper on Twitter, uh, thanks to Dr. Naidu. Um, and I will tag him on this episode once this comes out, um, who actually shared this paper on Twitter amongst the cardiology community, um, which, you know, talks about bullying as a tool for advancement within academia. Um, and I have with me the honor of having the authors of this paper, which was published in Nature now, now two years ago, um, and they can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I have Suzanne Teuber. Uh, Dr. Teuber is an associate professor of organizational behavior. And with Dr. Teuber is her co-author, Dr. Mahmoudi. And Dr. Mahmoudi is an assistant professor of radiology and precision medicine or precision health at Michigan State University. And they published this provocative piece in Nature now almost two years ago, um, which talks about bullying as a tool for advancement um, within academia, you know, career advancement. So with that introduction, uh, Suzanne and Morteza, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Ankur. Nice to be here. Um, so um, I'm going to just dive right in. Uh, Suzanne, you published this paper as first author and congratulations for getting such a provocative piece accepted in Nature. Um, and we will share the PDF or the link to this paper in our show notes when the episode comes out. What prompted you to write on this topic? Um, you know, curious to know. And again, kudos to you and congratulations for getting this published in Nature. Yeah, thank you so much, Ankur. I mean, uh, um, like the equal amount of credits have to go to Morteza, of course. Uh, I, I think uh, we wrote this paper out of an... Uh, like an increasing understanding of the nature of bullying in academia. I mean, there's a lot of talk um, over the past years about uh, why this behavior exists and how can we uh, sort of change this behavior. And um, I think what Morteza and I both experience also in our work uh, in the academic parity movement, where we speak with a lot of uh, people who have been targeted by bullying behavior in academia, is that um, people would always sort of excuse it. So there's this star academic and unfortunately this person, even though it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant scientist, uh, 
but this person somehow is uh, socially awkward, right? But then, if you if you put together the literature on uh, on bullying in academia, and and if you look at all the reports we now have, all the knowledge we have, and you see that this behavior is still persisting, it sort of prompted us to look at it from a totally different angle. And um, people have done that before us. And I think what made this piece fly so well is that we just put it in into very few words, right? Yes. I mean, you know, the, the piece is uh, a short piece. I think it's about 750 words, very powerful words. Morteza, yes, I'd like for you to chime in. And, you know, again, um, as Suzanne mentioned, congratulations for getting this piece published in Nature. And it's a, it's a provocative piece. It's a short piece. Um, it's very well written. Um, it just hits the nail on its head. Um, and I think what I want to ask you is when you submitted this to, well, first off, you know, when you finished writing this piece and you were thinking about where to put this uh, in for publication, was nature your first choice? And then once nature demonstrated interest in, in putting this piece, you know, out to, to a publication, what were some of the comments that you received from the editorial board and from the editor-in-chief? So walk me through the process of putting this together to having this go through peer review. Because some of the academics would, would be peer reviewers as well, right? Some of these bully, some of these bullies who are academics uh, who are, are part of the peer review, review process. And then, you know, having this go through peer review in nature and then getting it published. Walk me through that process. Yeah, sure. So one correction uh, <clears throat> I have to make is that the piece has been published in Nature Human Behavior <clears throat> and not Nature. So um, just uh, give you a little bit of introduction here about how we basically started the process. I mean, uh, my field of interest is in nanomedicine and regenerative medicine. And uh, um, based on the nature of my research, I had to basically get complementary training from different fields of science. That basically um, was the major reason that I uh, traveled a lot and visited different like universities, got training from them. Um, and I was in different scientific disciplines as well, because like I mentioned, it's needed um, to kind of connect the dots in the field of, uh, like, uh, in multidisciplinary fields, like nanomedicine and degenerative medicine. So I have been in uh, <clears throat> um, Ireland. I have been in Switzerland and different places in the United States. Um, no matter where, basically, I was doing research or getting training uh, about different issues, um, I always saw people suffering uh, from um, a wide range of academic bullying and harassment. So back in 2018, I decided to finally write a piece at Nature about the difficulties that international students have in reporting bullying and harassment behaviors, because the pattern was simple. Universities encourage, I mean, almost always encourage targets to speak up. They promise to back them up. 
But this is just um, the policies. When you see the patterns and the outcomes, um, it turned out that uh, like all of the pe- almost all of the people that I speak of, they are the one who basically pay the price. And most of them basically um, finally resign their positions or get fired from their positions. So I decided to write that piece. The reason was that international students or minority and minorities um, were kind of more vulnerable to those behaviors. So I wrote a correspondence to Nature. It was few paragraphs. It was like um, even a quarter of the Nature Human Behavior piece. So within two weeks. Um, I've received a huge number of response from um, uh, different members of the uh, scientific community. And the number of response were at least twofold higher than all of the responses I've got from my scientific papers all combined. So that clearly showed how important the issue of academic bullying and harassment uh, was in the field. So um, with the help of like uh, other colleagues, um, uh, we have started to basically um, study the issue of academic uh, bullying and harassment in more detail. And uh, um, I was very fortunate to uh, basically came across uh, Suzanne's work and we basically connected and we um, decided to write a piece about some of the root causes and the basically academic settings that bullies can thrive um, and why we have this problem for a, for a long time in academia. So that's why we basically um, identified uh, like uh, one powerful tool that many bullies use to get to the top and be kind of untouchable and remove all of the, I would say, noises from the department, which comes from a um, talented scientist who wants to do things right. So we prepared the piece and we thought about um, where we want to basically submit that piece. Um, we decided to go to nature human behavior as a first option because <clears throat> it was uh, it was very related. I mean, the journal's scope was very related to what we were talking about, and we decided to submit it as a correspondence. Um, so the correspondence basically is a type of manuscript at um, uh, Nature and uh, its uh, sister journals, that uh, the review process basically would be performed on um, editor's decision. So if they decide to send the piece to a review paper, to a peer review process, they do. Otherwise, if they find basically the uh, piece very interesting and timely and robust and powerful, they basically go directly to the editorial revision processes and uh, and basically accept it without peer review processes. So Suzanne and I went through like uh, at least two rounds of editorial decision to make it more concise and more right to the point. And the piece finally got uh, accepted after, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, three months after, basically, submission. 
um, we know that like at the time we knew that um, basically the piece gets um, huge attention because that was the behavior that we saw in different departments, different cultures, and different countries. Um, and we also took a great risk to publish such a thing, as you can imagine. Um, and this is basically what happened to Suzanne's uh, career because of publishing similar things. Uh, it basically provoked some people and manager at university level, and basically her position got in um, huge danger. So um, we got two um, kinds of uh, um, uh, feedback. Uh, almost over, I would say, 99% were thank you letters that we received for publishing such a thing. And uh, I would say less than one percent of the papers of the of the feedback came from a few um, kind of people who um, who were not very supportive, who who tried to justify like um, what you are describing here is part of academic freedom. Like Suzanne mentioned, some people. Um, try to justify bullying and harassment um, behaviors uh, under umbrella of academic freedom, which is which is kind of inappropriate. You know, this is um, very enlightening. Um, thank you for going over the process with me. And I'm going to have both of both you and Suzanne answer this question, but I'm going to go with Suzanne first. Um, Suzanne, why do you think these bullies? Um, consistently across the spectrum of cultures and countries and universities and organizations and institutions, why do these bullies find their way to the top consistently? You know, that's what bothers me. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we, we have tried to uh, to describe this process in this correspondence piece, but of course, it's a very short piece. But in a sense, what you see is an interaction between the organizational context, so how an organization is made, and uh, certain personality traits that get attracted or, uh, you know, not attracted to this organization. And academia, I think, across the globe by now is just uh, an organization that is very attractive to people with uh, personality traits um, that uh, personality psychologists call the dark triad, which consists of narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. And these are people that uh, sort of naturally gravitate towards positions of power and uh, they thrive in organizations where there is very little accountability. So academia is basically like, it's like the, a paradise for these kinds of people, right? Because they have the opportunity to, to gain a lot of positional power over people. So what you probably have heard a lot huh, is that this person can make or break a career. And usually it's just one person. Um, so people are in this extreme dependency of on just one person. And uh, yeah, I mean, so this is why actually 
I think if we want to change it, we really need to change the the structure of academia. The root cause is the hierarchy, the competitiveness and the dependency. And if you look at any policy at any university, uh, there is not a single policy I have come across that actually uh, is uh, challenging these root causes. Mm. Marteza, what do you think? What do you have to add to what Suzanne has just told us? And, you know, that's very honestly and very eloquently described. So thank you for the description. But Marteza, I'd like to hear your your viewpoint as well. Yeah, I can't agree more with uh, with what uh, Suzanne mentioned. The only thing I would add is that uh, the history of uh, responding to perpetrators and uh, uh, targets also help bullies to thrive again in the system. And that's why they continue to to do the same thing. If you look at the scandals of academic bullying that comes to the news, you see that perpetrators do bullying and harassment behaviors even for decades. And there are lots of examples out there if you like, make a, a fast search on Google, you see a couple of those examples. Perpetrators do the bullying and harassment behaviors even for decades. There are hundreds of complaints to the universities. None of them basically uh, support targets and face perpetrators. So you can imagine the kind of signal it sends to other perpetrators in the system that they get protected by the universities. Even their legal costs get covered by public money because their interests are intertwined with universities' interests. Whereas if a target wants to get a support from like legal entities, they need to basically cover all of their huge expenses. And those news, like I mentioned, send a very clear and negative signal to targets that they are the one who pay the price of bullying. So it encourages the culture of using the code of silence. So Suzanne and I wrote a follow-up piece uh, on science, again, last year, the title was Disrupting Target's Dependency to Perpetrators. So this is one of the reasons that, again, we have this issue in the system. One reason, like Suzanne mentioned, is is the personality of the perpetrators and how basically the academic setting helped them to thrive. The other reason is that targets have dependency to the perpetrator. Imagine if uh, a person is doing their PhDs and then they are at the fourth year of their PhDs and they receive huge uh, range of bullying and harassment behaviors, they try to use code of silence. The reason is simple because then if they complain, they need to basically... um, get away of all of their achievements in the in the four years of being in the PhD and doing research in the field. And uh, the unfortunate other thing is that the perpetrators make sure to retaliate if someone speaks up. They even follow targets after they, they basically change the institution. 
to make sure that they they destroy their career. So they create a fear, a culture of fear among targets, so they don't speak up. So the synergistic role of the academic setting, which helps bullies to thrive, and also force targets to use code of silence with various strategies, that makes basically this problem exist and grow in science. It's sad on multiple levels, right? It's it's sad for the science. It's sad for the targets. It it is also sad because uh, the amount of emotional pain that the target goes through can't, can't be described in words. You know, having, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure both, both both you and Suzanne have experienced this, and and so have I. And you know, I, I can I can attest to the fact that the emotional pain is um, is not trivial. Yeah, you are you are right, and I can't agree more. The I would say the other sad thing is that our understanding is that the adverse effect of bullying and harassment only goes to targets, but this is not the, the case. It goes to targets. It goes to their families. It goes to even people of the circle of the influence of that particular person that receive bullying and harassment like behaviors you are in the medical setting and you know that like toxic environment can increase errors in like medical decisions so even patients can can pay the price of a toxic environment Um, the other issue is that we have evidences that even scientific integrity and like you mentioned scientific progresses are also affected by bullying behaviors. We have evidences that some bullies force targets to manipulate data in a way that they want because they need to get grants, they need to publish in top-tier journals. So they want to see, like, cherry-pick-up results, if not manipulated results. So all of them can cause serious issues to both scientific evolution and scientific integrity as well. So I think that angle needs to be uh, portrayed a little bit better to the entire scientific community and all of the stakeholders. So they don't think that the, the issues just go to the targets. All of us as a member of the scientific community pay the price of the uh, toxic behavior in academia. The other sad thing is that if the targets remain on hill, there's a great risk that they do the bullying behaviors once they get to the uh, position of power. And imagine if the unhealed targets basically goes to other sectors like industries, they can also make that problem and propagate that problem to other sectors as well. So um, I would say universities need to understand that if they continue to support bullies, they would be a factor of future bullies rather than progression of science. Maybe I can add to that uh, um, what Morteza just said. There's also a great cost uh, for society, right? I mean, uh, universities are publicly funded. 
So we are basically, as taxpayers, funding bullies. We are funding, uh, you know, fake science, as Morteza said. Uh, we are funding the, um, you know, the uh, bullying uh, of targets out of the academy. We know, for instance, Morteza was mentioning that before, we know that um, members of minoritized and underrepresented groups are much more likely to become targets of bullying. But these people also have certain uh, research uh, areas and interests that they do research about, huh? you, like political identity, um, gender inequality, social justice. So these research fields also become sort of under-investigated, underfunded. Koslovsky et al. Uh, published a very interesting paper on that last year, um, showing that, for instance, if uh, everyone would just become professor according to the U.S. census, right, uh, in, in, in the distribution of who has uh, become, uh, uh, finished their PhD, we would have, for instance, like uh, – I'm, I'm not sure about the correct number, but I think something like 25% more papers on uh, gender equality. So um, we are actually losing insights also into some of the most pressing problems that we are facing as humanity right now. So the problem is like, is really, really huge. The costs are for everyone and the benefits are just for the few people that call themselves star academics. Uh, and often based on research and ideas they stole from others. Yeah, it's uh, it's a perpetrating problem. Uh, it's sort of like a chain reaction that once it sets itself off, it's just hard to hard to get a handle and, and control it. Um, and you've um, thanks for bringing the other paper to my attention, Morteza. You said that you published a paper in Science, which talks about disrupting this this chain reaction and disrupting this vicious cycle which it sounds like to me self-perpetuating. Um, how do we do that? So we know there is a problem. We know, I'm, I'm sure we ourselves and many included know targets and know their stories and know that they are genuine people and the stories are, are genuine. And we know how much problem this causes downstream, not only to targets, not only to their families, not only to their friends, to their careers, but to society at large, how do we control this problem? So in my opinion, uh, and I think Susan would also agree as well, is, uh, is that we need help from other stakeholders as well. Because like I mentioned, universities by themselves have, have limited interest in, in fully addressing the academic bullying and harassment behaviors. The reason is that they don't have budget to heal targets. They don't have budget or allocated budget to support targets. Most of the perpetrators are well-funded. They bring funding, huge funding to the universities. Universities get paid. They get overhead. So it's hard for them to, to kind of make a fair and unbiased response to perpetrators because they're... Um, their reputation is also on stake. So I would say if other stakeholders like funding agencies truly come to the equation and uh, enforce universities to, to fairly consider the bullying behaviors, at least the investigation process and facing 
to the perpetrators and supporting targets, then the situation would be different. And we have we have good successful example of that in the scientific community. For example, in the UK, we have a major funding agencies called Wellcome Trust. And they basically got funding from a perpetrator and there was a, like a multi-million like pounds of funding. And they mandate universities to also expose and report anti-bullying records of the PIs to the funding agencies. Otherwise, they don't support universities. They don't support PIs. They don't fund them. And this is uh, this is the progresses that um, NIH also started a few years ago. So they basically created a direct line for targets whose PIs have NIH funding. So they can basically do independent investigation on the cases and they take away funding from uh, perpetrators. So that basically would help a lot. Or if other stakeholders like the university ranking, like decision makers, then then I think universities has less reasons to support perpetrators because they they get I mean most of their revenues either financial or by like uh, absorbing great scientists comes from their reputations. So if anti-bullying record of the universities basically have a role in their ranking, then the situation would be different. For example, we ran a global survey a few years ago to better understand contextual behaviors of academic bullying and harassment and where basically those bullying behaviors are are more kind of frequent. And we noticed that the the high-rank universities are the worst in the frequency and different types of academic bullying and harassment. So imagine if anti-bullying records then come to the equation of the ranking, then it can make a huge difference on the university's mission to basically create the, the, uh, the safe environment for everyone. The other entity that we currently lack is is an entity that can have address to that can have access to the uh, reports of internal investigation on academic bullying and harassment by universities because they basically do internal investigations then there would be no report out of that so all of them remains confidential at university level you can imagine that there would be no accountability on the members of the investigation committee. Even for the case of scandals of academic bullying that came to the news, there's, I mean, I have never witnessed an statement from the members of the investigation committee that why they covered bullies over hundreds of complaints over two decades. How did, how that could happen? How that could, could even be like, be happening at the university level and no one is accountable for their actions. So if such an entity make the members of the investigation committee members accountable for their actions, then again, the universities has less interest in covering up for bullies. Yeah, no, these are um, some great thoughts and um, 
I just don't know if there will ever be a day where I see all these implemented, but, you know, certainly are, are great, great um, solutions um, for universities to consider, for, you know, academia to consider, for, you know, deans and provosts, what have you to consider. Um, Suzanne, uh, I do want to talk about, about your experience, you know, if, uh, if you permit, um, and um, also want to talk about the academic parity movement. Do you want to talk us through some of these, uh, um, you know, some of these core discussion points for this podcast? Yes, I can do that, Ankur. I, I wanted to briefly come back to what you just said, because I'm hearing this sort of skepticism in your voice, right? Will we ever see this, these changes? And I think this is so important because um, universities always claim that all they need is better policies, right? But all the policies sort of neglect the fact that universities have never been equal, equitable institutions. They have been founded on principles of inequality, on certain races and genders and, uh, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds being superior to others. So I'm really convinced that if we do not have this conversation about who holds the power in the university, who is privileged, who benefits from the ongoing inequality, we will never change it. So I'm really waiting for the courageous uh, administrator or university president who's going to say, and from now on, we are doing things differently. Because I share your sentiment, Ankur, that with policies and and good advice, uh, all the insights we are sharing all the time, we're just not getting there. We are not, uh, to speak in your podcast, we are not making a dent yet. So I hope that also with the academic parity movement, um, uh, over time, we can make this dent. So that was just um, uh, about this and then about my case. So I've been fired uh, on International Women's Day this year on March 8th from the university uh, because in 2019 I've written an essay uh, exactly about that, about the discrepancy between their gender equality policy and the daily inequality practices that I was experiencing as a scholar there. And ever since that uh, essay was published, I was um, very much like what uh, Morteza described before. I was basically chased down, uh, hunted, um, until they finally uh, managed to uh, to fire me. And this is, of course, one of the ways in which this system sort of uh, maintains itself and reproduces itself, namely by silencing and making invisible the critical voices. And it's really, really difficult to sort of navigate this because if you want to stay in the system, you sort of have to really tread very carefully and oftentimes so carefully that you're not actually able to make any ch change, right? And uh, yeah, if if you speak up critically, it can happen to you that the system will just uh, get rid of you. And this is what happened to me. Yeah, it's um, 
it's sort of uh, an uphill battle for the change makers, isn't it? That uh, history has shown that to us time and again. Um, and I think then, uh, you know, the re- I mean, I'm talking to someone who is a professor of organizational behavior, but, you know, this is my take on it. You know, I, I think there's some of us who would be quiet and sit down, and then there are some of us who would make this a cause and a mission for our life, right? Um, and I congratulate you both for treading the more arduous path of making it a mission for for your life, you know, both you and Morteza. And you brought up Make, Make a Dent, which is my nonprofit organization, which, you know, certainly supports um, equality and, uh, you know, equitable um, opportunities for uh, people across the spectrum of, you know, gender, race, socioeconomic status, what have you, uh, you know, and also do do some, you know, work not only in the in the in the science space, but but also in, you know, disparities and uh, and diversity and equity and inclusion. So, um, you know, as as an extension to this conversation, you know, we can have this conversation off the line. But if there's anything makeadent.org can do to support the academic parity movement, you know, consider me an ally and a colleague. Um, any closing remarks uh, from you, Morteza, and 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 then I'll ask for some closing remarks from Suzanne. But thank you again for uh, being so responsive to a to a cold email from me uh, and demonstrating interest to come on the podcast. Uh, you know, which is largely uh, downloaded by cardiologists in the making or early career or mid career cardiologists. It's uh, it's a podcast for the cardiology community, but I'm sure a topic like this um, is, uh, you know, transcends all specialties and and is unfortunately ubiquitous. But any closing remarks for the for this conversation we had today and 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 for the academic parity movement? Yeah, the only thing uh, I would uh, love to mention is that. We, I mean, as a members of the scientific community, we all need to feel responsible and responsible to what's happening at our science backyard. So um, the only way we can basically address this issue in a timely and effective manner, manner is uh, collective actions that all of us can do. If we see a, like a bullying behavior, as a bystander, we should do something. If we are like journal editors, um, in your case, in like cardiology, we need to consider the fact that our audience deserve to know about bullying and harassment behaviors in their community as well. So pieces on academic bullying and harassment are not out of the scope of any journal. In fact, issues of racism, gender imbalances, and academic bullying and harassment are the scope of every journal. So they can contribute to increase awareness about the issue. So long and short of it is, in all positions that any member of the scientific community have, they can contribute they can feel responsible and, like I mentioned, responsible to this issue. And if all of us do something, I'm sure we can make like the environment unsafe, 
for bullying and harassment behavior. So perpetrators basically try to either fix their behaviors or leave academia. Suzanne, any closing remarks from you? Yeah, well, maybe just a shout out uh, to all the scholars out there. Uh, you know, uh, oftentimes it's it's junior scholars uh, affected. If you're out there, if you're listening to this, if you're affected, just know um, it's not all in your mind. You are not alone. Uh, we are there for you. Uh, if you need to talk to anyone, uh, feel free to reach out also to the academic parity movement, connect, because I, I do really uh, agree with Morteza. We are academia, so we can make this uh, stop, this behavior, and we have to stand in solidarity with each other. Yeah, no, excellent. And, you know, um, I'm only grateful that, um, uh, you know, Parallax and, and Make a Dent can, can be um, a beacon for um, spreading this message, um, you know, across the cardiology community. Um, and I, I hope that this episode gets downloaded um, several times and all over um, the 60 countries that were downloaded in. And um, I hope that people reach out to the academic parity movement and, and to you and, and, you know, seek counsel and help. And, you know, thanks again for uh, doing this for us at such a short notice. And, uh, you know, it was a delight to speak with both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Ankur. Yeah, no, my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at radcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.